You're listening to the Corporate Quitter Podcast, where it's all about exploring possibilities for making an honest living outside of the traditional nine to five. Welcome to Corporate Quitter. I'm your host, Gabby Ianello. And today's guest, I'm so excited about because not only did my badass audio editor, Tony, connect us, so like we're both on the same wavelength, but I feel like I've known her for my whole life. She like seems like a best friend to me. I just like get along with her so well. My boyfriend loves her. So her name is Tiffany Yates Martin. She's spent more than two decades as an editor in the publishing industry, working with major publishers as well as the New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, and USA Today. She's also the founder of Fox Print Editorial, working with best-selling and award-winning authors and the author of the bestseller, Intuitive Editing, A Creative and Practical Guide to Revising Your Writing, which I now have a copy of because Tiffany sent it to me. But I know a lot of people, myself included, have wanted to release books. So I'm so glad that you're on here to just talk about basically everything to do with publishing and editing and all that good stuff. My very favorite topics. (laughs) So thank you so much for coming on. Obviously, we've talked a bazillion times because of just getting to know for prepping this episode, as well as you telling me everything about Austin. But what's your full story? Like, I know you were a waitress, then you were a struggling actress, then you were a freelancer, now you're running a publishing-focused business. So obviously, you've been around the block. So what's the full story? What happened? Uh, First, thanks for having me. I'm so happy we're finally doing this. Everyone doesn't know that it got put off a few times for travel and illness and all that, but I feel the same way like from the first time we talked, so I'm delighted to do this. You and I talked a little bit about the fact that I'm not exactly a corporate quitter because I was never a corporate starter (laughs) because because I knew from a really young age I didn't want to do that. My first job was this horrific, I don't even know if they have this company anymore. I was 13 years old. It was called Olin Mills Photography. And my job was to sit, not even in a cubicle, it was at like a bank of phones. And you sat there with a script in front of you and you cold called people. And I did that for hours on end. And even at that age, I thought, I can't do this. But I was a creative person and I knew I wanted to be an actor, as you said. So that was what I was going to go into anyway. And like pretty much every actor on the planet, I was a waiter, (laughs) which was great. And I started in Atlanta and then I moved to New York City. And I actually was really enjoying waiting tables because it was, I was on my feet. I had fun friends. I was really good at selling. So I made good money. But after a while, acting is not a get-rich-quick scheme or a get-rich-ever scheme, really. So I figured I needed something that was a little bit more sustainable. At this point, I had—so I graduated with a degree in English Lit for the reason that I wanted to graduate with a degree in theater, but the school I went to had a pretty thin theater program at the time, and it would have taken me another year to get that, which (laughs) was—I was not down with that. So I asked my counselor, what do I have the most credits in? And he said, well, English. I said, great, I'm an English major. But the reason I had credits in it is because I loved it. We used to diagram sentences. I love diagramming sentences. I exempted a whole year of college English with an AP English test. So it was not an accident, I think, looking back now. But at the time, obviously, you know, you don't major in English because you have great career aspirations in the field. You either want to teach or you had nothing else to major in. So I'd been waitressing for a while, living in New York, and in the New York Times, there was an ad that said, get paid for reading books, send us $25, and we'll show you how. And I'm sure it's a scam, but I thought, okay, I'm going to do it because I want to get out of waitressing. And I needed something that would allow me to, uh, I was doing regional theater at this time, and I needed something that was portable, that would allow me to have a better living than acting provided, 
because I'm not the starving artist type, but that I could take with me and be able to pursue acting jobs. So I sent away for this booklet, and it turned out it was full of really good information on how to become a copy editor and proofreader. For your listeners who may not know the difference between that and the kind of editing I do now, that's like um, typos, grammar mistakes, punctuation, usage, fact-checking, that sort of thing. And what I do now is more working with authors on the creative side from the ground up. So I started working as a copy editor. I did that for a lot of years and then eventually realized I was not enjoying acting. And at that point, I had always thought, okay, when I either don't make it or give up on acting, I'm going to have to give in and go get me a corporate job <laughs> because, you know, health insurance and retirement and all that. And one day, my my mom and my brother, who are very sort of left-brain responsible types, sat me down. This sounds so naive right now. But at the time, it was news to me and explained compound interest and investing to me. I remember saying to them as they're telling me this, because it like blew up this nuclear bomb in my mind. And I said, you've just freed me for the rest of my life from ever having to get, quote, a real job, because I realized I could fend for myself and I could provide my own retirement if I just started investing and being mindful about being careful about that. So that was sort of a new direction for me where I realized I was not going to go into corporate. I had tempted at that point. One of the jobs I had was for an ad agency where they offered me a full-time job and I could even have spare time to do my copy editing work. So it would have been like a double salary. But sitting in there in that office every day in that environment, it sucked the soul out of me and I couldn't do it. So I... Um, I did copy editing, which also allowed me to pursue like journalism and some other interests until about 13 years ago, I started to get interested in doing the kind of editing I'm doing now where I work closely with authors on the, as I said, on the creative side, transitioned into that, gave up acting, and I've just, it's been building ever since. I've been in the business doing this, as you said, both with publishers and directly with authors for almost 30 years now. And it's been growing all that time, but it really exploded about maybe two years ago when I wrote a book about the topic, Intuitive Editing, which you mentioned. Thank you. It just kind of changed my whole business model. Like up until then, my model had been sort of basically freelancing. I do this work for authors and publishers, and that pays my living. But I was limited by the fact that I could only take as much work as I could actually do. And my husband, who is a corporate type, he's been talking to me about trying to figure out how to maximize my opportunity for income beyond that. So I had been thinking in that direction, but I wasn't ready for it. And then almost overnight when the book published, it changed the game for me. I had to figure out really quickly what my business was now. Like for all these years, my website had basically offered you a bunch of resources if you were an author and told you how to hire me. And then you couldn't hire me anymore, really, because I was staying too booked and I wasn't really open to new clients. And I was on my website updating it one day and I thought, uh, what do I do now? What is like, what is my actual business now? And that was when I really started to expand it. It's really cool how you have such a windy like story and you still made it out alive, right? You still found your purpose. You still found your calling. Like you still found the thing that makes you excited and everything had its place. Because I think especially for people my age or even younger, right? The people who are like just graduating from high school, they're in a panic because they're like, I don't even know what I'm going to do with my life. What if I make a wrong move? Yeah. What if I make a mistake? 
Who does? It's so weird we have to decide in college what we're going to do for the rest of our lives. Who the hell knows? I don't know. I never feel like I, every day I go by and I'm like, I think I know, I think I'm going to do this today. Like it's a just never ending loop of trying to repivot and reinvent ourselves, even if we're still doing the same thing. I almost think that's the mindset you need to do what you do and what I do. Like if you're going to be a corporate quitter and create your own business, you have to think like that. Yeah, exactly. And you had said a good thing too, when we first got to know each other, you were saying like, when people always talk about secrets to success of just like entrepreneurship or just like living a full life, if you will, whether you're a corporate quitter or not, one of the things you said was like, if you don't change, you're going to die. And not physically, but like, if you don't change or pivot and reinvent yourself, you're basically going to die out or that idea is going to like fall apart or just like you're going to be basically cast to the wayside. Yeah. I think with like a lot of corporate jobs, you know what to expect. You're told where, you know, how the business is going to grow, what you're going to move into. And yes, you're trying to angle your particular career path, what promotion you might want, what position you want. But overall, the framework is there for you. It's not there for you when you are your own boss, when you're creating your own small business. So if you're not light on your feet, I always call it, you're going to get left behind, especially now. Like even when I started in this business, and I'm a dinosaur, (laughs) but publishing was so different back then than it is now. There were basically six major publishers. They called them the big six. There's only four now. And that was the game for the most part. There were some minor publishers, but if you weren't working with one of them, you pretty much weren't working. Well, that's completely changed now. But we've also, I remember when the business, this is embarrassing to admit, uh, when it went electronic, I mean, when I first started, you literally went and picked up the hard copy giant ream of paper to work on the edits and to fact check kids, because this was before the internet, I went to the New York Public Library and I sat there with like books, analog books, and I checked all these different facts. So you had to pivot with that. I mean, there was a major publisher whose CEO handed down the edict, we will not be going to electronic books. And I just thought, even as sort of tech-challenged as I can be, I remember thinking, you can't do that. The world is changing. And now more than ever, you'll be obsolete in a year if you don't stay on top of how your industry is changing. And also how your particular business may be changing, like I had to pivot when the book came out. Yeah. It's funny you bring that up too, because you wonder now we have eBooks, we have also like smaller publishers, right? Like not just like big four, as you say, but like, I'm sure in the next decade, the way that we ingest knowledge, I mean, at this point we can barely watch long YouTube videos. We need to watch like 10 to 20 second videos because our mindset, like we can't even keep attention. So I'm wondering what reading quote unquote, right? Reading books will look like even 10 years from now. You're going to have to pivot again too, in some regard. It's true. Like what I'm working on right now. And let me tell you, I go kicking and screaming into every advance that is made because I fear change. (laughs) I fear and resist change in technology, but I also know it's essential. And thank God I married a techie. So he has kept me sort of on the cutting edge of everything. But what I'm trying to learn now, and I feel stupid even talking about it because I've just started putting my toe in it. What I'm hearing is that one thing that's going to sort of change the industry next are NFTs and blockchain. Don't ask me what that means yet. I'm still looking into it. But I do know that if that's where my industry is going, I need to know what that is. And I need to know what, well, for one thing, it gives authors more control. And one good thing about how this industry has been changing is that traditionally, 
the person who creates the product, and by product, I mean, you know, the book or whatever it is you're writing, has been the person who has the least amount of control over their career and generally benefits least from it. And I hate that about this business, although I love this business. And more and more, a lot of these changes that are happening, they're a mixed bag. There's some good and there's some bad, but they are giving the author a lot more autonomy and opportunity. Yeah, I've heard that's the general focus point of just the blockchain in general is giving more power to the creators or the creatives, whether it's in, right, in this case, the book industry, or maybe it's in the gaming industry or like something other than the power players of like the CEOs of these corporations having the most money and the power and the say in everything, which is cool. But I want to switch gears and say more into like this current reality with like editing and publishing before we go into a tangent about like NFTs and stuff, which I know Tony would love to talk about in here, but- <laughs> Let's never um, go into that tangent, actually. <laughs> Give me time. <laughs> so I'm wondering like, right? Because at this point, right, you've gone through all those different layers of like different careers that didn't work out or like the pivoting and whatnot. But like as an operating practice from being a successful business owner, what are some of the things that you've done other than changing on a dime that has made a difference for you? Well, let's start with this one. Um, You and I talked about what I call operating with integrity, (laughs) which has to do with how I deal with the people that I work with. In my case, it's authors and publishing houses. But it also has to do with staying in touch with what your purpose is, and also that your purpose is not just necessarily one thing. When I find I get into trouble, a couple of things. When I have lost touch with why I'm doing this, and I'm as susceptible to the demons as anybody, comparison, imposter syndrome, perfectionism, the things that can cripple you. And I always have to remind myself, what's the core of what my business is? which is I want to help authors bring their stories into the world. And as long as I can continue to focus on that, I call it my outward-focused business. So how do I serve the people that I want to serve? Not by how do I sell them something or get them to get into my funnel, <laughs> but how do, I, how do I offer a value to the people that I genuinely want to help midwife their creativity into the world. And that really helps keep me focused, is knowing why I do this. That's also actually helped me grow the business because, you know, you said it seems like all these random career paths, and it did to me at the time. But looking back, it's kind of what I said to you. One of the guiding tenets I have always had in my career and my life, (laughs) sounds really shallow, is if I'm not having fun, why am I doing it? which is why I didn't want to go into the corporate world because it did not look like fun to me. Although, and I told you this, when I was, gosh, really young, middle school, I had a best friend and we played this game we called Corporations, where basically what it consisted of is we each created an imaginary company that was whatever our name is, Inc. So I'm like Tiffany Yates, Inc. at the time. And we had imaginary employees and we basically made letterhead and business cards And that was pretty much the extent of it. We had imaginary business deals. But even though that was sort of corporate E, even then I understood that I wanted to be the one at the top of it. You know what I mean? I didn't want to work in someone else's business towards someone else's goals. I wanted to work toward my own, and I wanted to always enjoy what I was doing. Stupid cliches, but that whole thing about do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life, or you know, do what you would do for free, or do what puts you in a flow state— There's a lot to that. And I think one of the reasons I have been successful, and not just successful, but had longevity. I started doing what I was doing before 
like there's been this huge explosion of services for authors, editing included. But when I first started, that didn't exist. You basically had access to that pretty much if you were with a publisher and that was it. But being able to pursue the things I loved has allowed me to create a business that has sustained me handsomely for my entire working career. And I think it's because of that, because I've always, I sort of work it backward. Instead of going, how can I make money and what can I do that I would tolerate? I always think, what is it I love to do and how can I make money doing that thing? Yeah. You said two really important things. You said longevity, which is, I think, a lot of people, they're looking for the quick fix as opposed to the long-term game, and that's where they get in trouble. But also, another thing, when you said having fun, what I found from all the people who've been wildly successful in their careers, whether they're self-employed, they're freelancers, like whatever it is, they all say, I just want to have fun. And like, that's not a corporate thing because corporate is very serious. And it's like, they act like they're saving lives, even though it's like, you're just building up a portfolio. Like if this whole thing fell apart, like this company wouldn't do shit for the plant. Like it doesn't matter. It's not hard surgery, but they act like it is. And it's so serious and so non-creative to the point that you don't have fun. And so you wonder why, if, is that the real reason why people are miserable? Probably. So if you can actually capture your essence of what's fun for you and actually put a dollar sign to it too, that's amazing. But I think you also, I mean, I do have fun every day. I always joke that my worst day at work is still a pretty good day. <laughs> but I also think it's a business and you do have to take it seriously. And you have to take yourself seriously, which can be hard to do when you're, you know, getting up and wandering into your, I don't know, a corner of your living room. For me in New York, it was a little tiny corner of my bedroom where I worked. It's hard to remember this is a legit business. In fact, it's funny, there were many times, my husband, as I said, is a corporate guy, and so he pushes me into areas where, as someone who's been self-employed my whole career, I either didn't know or was leery of moving forward, such as asking for higher rates or moving into developmental editing. I'm very quick to sort of think, or used to be, not anymore, but I used to think, who am I to do this? You know, I'm just working here in my little corner of my bedroom <laughs> and taking my skills for granted. So I think you have to treat it like a business. For 30 years, I have gotten up, taken a shower, put on my makeup, gotten dressed. You're looking at me today. I'm wearing like hard pants, <laughs> like a grown-up girl. And I've done it all through the pandemic because that's how. what's one way I take it seriously as a business. I always operate in a professional manner. And my job is fun. I'm not going to lie. You go to a writer's conference where let's say I'm maybe presenting a workshop or something, and you're having a really good time. You are hanging out with creative people that you have tons in common with, and you love talking. And quite honestly, you're sitting, they call it bar con, you're sitting at the bar after everything, and you're having some drinks, and you're, you know, things get a little silly because it's creative. Even in an environment like that, I have fun, but I always remember, this is my job. This is my business, and I will present myself in a professional manner. I will show up as promised. I will do the work as promised. I have a structure for my business. Every single day, I know what my deadlines are and what I have to do to achieve them. I think sometimes people think, oh, I'm going to quit my corporate job and go into freelancing or self-employed or have my own small business because I want freedom to do it any way I want to. And you do have that. But if you operate without some kind of structure and professionalism, I think you're going to either be dead in the water or you may come on really strong out of the gate and then not be able to sustain that. I've heard the phrase over and over again of like, treat it like a hobby, you get hobby results. So like I treated my initial endeavor very nonchalantly. And then when I actually switched it to that of a CEO of like, 
that's how I should be introducing myself, did then things start to shift and the media coverage happened and all that stuff. It's such a mindset thing. Isn't that funny? It's fake it till you make it, but damned if those stupid cliches aren't based in truth. <laughs> I know, right? But I want to reel it back a bit and talk a little bit more publishing as opposed to just business stuff. So I'm wondering for the people who are looking to kind of, you know, build the connections in their business, right? They're just starting out even for my corporate quarters and stuff like that. And they're not maybe new with social media. They're not comfortable with it, right? They don't have the following. They don't have any of that. So like, how can you utilize organic reach or nurture your current connections? Because I know that's what you did, especially like with social media not existing 30 years ago. Like, how can you actually build a business or build those networking connections through an organic way? Oh, that's a really good question. And I hear it too. You know, it's build your followers and be active on social media. And I know you have to do that. And I do a degree of it because you have to do that. That's the society we live in. It's that change or die thing. They also say, pick what feels organic for you and the best way for you to reach people. And that is not what feels like the kind of connections I want to make. I'm not trying to build a client list. I'm building relationships. And I'm trying to be engaged in my field and knowledgeable in my field. And part of this writing community, which is a very strong and very big community, I want to be a fixture in that. I want to be a thought leader in that. And you don't do it by posting and getting a bunch of followers. My newsletter list has been growing slowly, but it's I have incredibly engaged followers, like astonishingly engaged as far as the open rates, as far as interaction, as far as click-throughs. And I think that's because I'm forging these connections. So the way I do it, I do a lot of in-person stuff back in the day. I do teaching, conferences and writers groups. Um, I offer workshops. I talk to writers' organizations. I collaborate with other professionals. A rising tide lifts all boats, right? It's not a zero-sum game. But also, I try to, again, this is the light on your feet thing. Like when COVID hit, I try to stay in touch with what's going on in my community. So I'm listening to how authors are reacting. And we're all freaked out over how our lives have changed on a dime. So everybody's trying to cope with the new pressures of, you know, your kids feels like forever ago now, which is weird, but because now it's normal. But my kids are home and uh, everybody's trying to work at home and we don't know what's going to happen and the world's suddenly a dangerous place. And are we going to get sick? And you have all those worries. Plus, imagine trying to create something, which requires, you know, a different kind of mindset. It requires you to be able to kind of lose yourself in that. And it's really hard to do when your left brain is screaming at you about all the things that are pressing on you and all these worries. So I immediately created a workshop for authors about how to do creative things and serve your writing, even if you can't write. And that was the first online course I created. Because we're all stuck at home, nobody's going to conferences, nobody can go to classes, and I called every writer's organization and chapter of a writing group that I knew or had worked with and said, I have this presentation, I'm going to give it to you guys for free if you want it. Because A, it was a give back, B, I was trying to do something with these online courses and this was a great opportunity, and then C, it allowed me to figure out what authors needed to be in touch with that and offer them something that was going to be useful and expand my reach by exposing me to a whole bunch of other people. I always feel terrible saying this because I know it's been a horrific time for so many people, but creatively and business-wise, the last two, two and a half years have been extraordinary for my business. And I think it was because of things like that, because I 
stayed in touch with this organic reach. I wasn't on social media necessarily. I mean, I am on there, but I wasn't trying to mostly focus on doing stuff on there. Instead, I was continuing to build these relationships in every way I could to directly reach people. I always think you should give value before you start asking for things. And like I said, we're building relationships. We're not building client lists. So don't worry about followers. Create an engaged audience by giving that value and doing what you do and letting people find you because of that. I'm out there a lot. In addition to all the stuff I said, I write for a lot of writer sites. I do a lot of podcasts. I go to book festivals. I talk to other authors. I started a monthly feature on my blog called How Writers Revise. Again, how to serve authors. We're taught how to write. We're not necessarily taught how to edit and revise, which is my field of expertise. And so I seek out really successful authors and I ask them to talk about that so that I can share it. That's not a paid thing for me, but it is a value that I offer that makes my community of people I would like to build relationships with aware of me in a way that I am offering them something that's going to help them. That's awesome. And I know that myself included, I always forget that there's things that you could do in person because we've become such a digitalized era where everything is online that we almost forget, like, you can go to your local library. Like, you can go do these things at community colleges and whatever else in order to actually meet people one-on-one because I would assume, just like you, that basically whenever you meet someone in person, probably get along with them really well and you can strike up a conversation and that trust is immediately built. That is very difficult to do on social media, let alone get anyone to pay attention to you. So if you can actually connect with someone in person— Obviously, it's going to be better for business. We just forget that that's an option. Even not necessarily just in person, but I mean, a lot of this that happened in the last two years was online because, you know, our whole lives were. But there is, as you point out, there is this direct connection that's different from making a post or doing a like or even leaving comments and bantering in the comments. It's a human connection. And I think there's a lot of value to that. And not just because I'm a dinosaur. <laughs> no, I know. And I, I sometimes I forget to you know, just actually value that in-person connection because I'm so tapped into the phone sometimes I need to like actually remember like, okay, this is actually not real. Right. And think about you and I, like I really enjoyed the first time we talked was this. It was a video conversation where we were face-to-face. Yes, it was virtual, but we were connecting directly. Whereas I think if we had done that via email or on, you know, Twitter DMs, I don't think you and I would have had the opportunity to connect the way we did on a human level. Yeah, that's true. Good old Zoom. <laughs> Good old Zoom. <laughs> Solving <bless> problems. <laughs> but, so I want to dive more into like the actual nitty gritty of like intuitive editing and, and all of that stuff. Because with me specifically, as well as other people that I've spoken to who want to either publish books or just write and things like that, the concept of that is daunting to begin with, let alone actually trying to edit. So like, what are some of the myths about publishing and editing that you could share with us? Like maybe some things that are true that yes, the things that we're freaking out about are true, but then also maybe saying like, this actually isn't the truth and it's actually easier said than done or something like that. Well, let's start with publishing because those are two really different things. And I think that's, if somebody is, if your listeners are like, oh, I really want to write a book, that's probably what they're thinking. Nobody thinks, I can't wait to edit my book. In fact, even writers don't want to edit their book (laughs) half the time. Um, So the quick thing on editing, actually, we can just do that and be done with it, is I think authors think 
writers, anybody who wants to write, thinks, all I have to do is write the book, and then I'll figure out what to do with it. Writing is, I always say, the first base camp on Everest. Most of the work of writing is in editing and revision, and we can talk more about that. But let's talk about the publishing industry, because I think that's sort of more pertinent if you haven't uh, really embarked on the writing side of it yet. I talked to an author once who said to me that her retirement plan was to write novels. And she was very smart in so many ways about the business, but even she didn't realize that that is like your retirement plan being to buy a lottery ticket. The statistics are fairly grim. It's sort of like acting is not a get-rich-quick-or-ever uh, career. So is publishing. I'll just give you a quick overview of what the last Authors Guild survey found in 2018. The Median annual writing income for authors who answered their survey, I think it was 15 writers organizations, is $6,000. The median income of the writers who consider themselves full-time writers is $20,000. The average advance right now is five dollars to $15,000 is the average book advance. You get that in three installments at least. That doesn't count what comes out of it for your agent if you have one. It doesn't count the marketing you now have to do because the days of publishers handling all that for you are kind of behind us. Publishers will do a lot for you, traditional publishers and smaller presses, but a lot of it still rides on the author's shoulders. About 1% to 2% they found of all submitted manuscripts get published, and of those, an even smaller percentage are getting published traditionally. And every year, Various estimates have come up with figures that between 300,000 and 1 million other books are published. So those are the daunting realities of it. But as you and I were saying earlier, it is also a time of more opportunity and more autonomy for authors than we have ever had. Once upon a time, when I first started in the business and it was the big six, you either got with the big six, which is really hard, still is to get with the big four now, or you pretty much didn't publish, or you went with a, what they called a vanity publisher back then, which was basically you gave them a bunch of money and they would bind your book for you. And the only people who really did that were, well, a lot of people did it, but it was good for people with a platform who wanted to have books at their talks and workshops and that kind of thing, and that could be effective. But otherwise, it was pretty much looked down on in the industry if you did vanity publishing. Well, now you have the traditional publishing. There are fewer opportunities for that, but there's also a ton of small presses now, many of them very reputable. And then there's what they call indie publishing, which is basically self-publishing. And that means if you want to get a book published, you absolutely can. I didn't even mention this. One of the things I've done in sort of the course of my career is I'm also a writer. I write fiction. I've had six novels published under my pen name, Phoebe Fox. And between that and my editing book, I have published Small Press. I've published Traditional with Penguin Random. And I have published Indie Pub. And I did all of those very deliberately. So you can choose the career that you want to have. And that's great. More people are reading right now than ever before they're showing. Ebooks have done wonders toward broadening reading audiences. Books are selling more and more all the time. So there's good news too. The other thing to remember is you don't need an MFA to write your book. If you want to start writing, you learn by writing and you learn by mastering the craft. And you can do that in so many ways. There's books, there's classes, there's conferences, you join writers groups, there are a million resources. I think there 
used to be, and maybe still is, sort of a, (laughs) I call it the snob effect, where it's almost like, oh, you're not a real writer unless you have an MFA, which was the same when I was an actor. I remember doing a show and someone asked me where my MFA was from. And I said, oh, I don't have one. I'm an English major. And they were horrified. And I said, well, isn't it funny? We're doing the same show. (laughs) And it's, you know, it's the same thing. I don't have an MFA in writing, but I have books traditionally published. So don't let literary snobbery hold you back from trying to express your creativity. But do go into it. You know, those statistics I said, they can sound depressing. But to me, I find them freeing. Because if you know that going in, if you know the odds are stacked against you, if you know that this likely is not going to be your golden ticket out of whatever it is you would rather not be doing, then that gives you the freedom to be able to choose what your path is, to do the exact creative thing that is pressing on you, to pursue the thing that gives you joy rather than, you know, even the authors I talk to who are successful, I told you about my How Writers Revise feature, I cannot tell you how many of them have told me that the most they ever enjoyed writing, the freest they ever felt in their creativity, was when they lost an editor, lost a publishing contract, found themselves, you know, without somebody buying their book, because suddenly there are no expectations. It's a mixed bag. Even if you get the golden ticket, now you're a commodity. Rightly so. These are businesses. But that means you're writing to a deadline. It means you're writing to expectations that may or may not fit your creative vision. It means that you have given up some measure of control over your career. It means that, you know, when you sign a contract, you're signing your rights, basically. You're saying, I no longer own my creative product. You own it forever. And in return for that, you get whatever it is they're offering you. Even book advances, I talked about how low they can be. Authors think, oh, great, but the royalties. You don't get royalties unless you sell out, you sell through whatever they paid you in the advance. Most books never do that. But knowing all of that allows you to chart the course you want to chart. And there are many ways you can make a decent amount of money doing this and turn it into a business depending what you want to put into it and what you're looking for. But It's not an easy ride, I guess, is what I'm saying. Know that. Know that it's not something you can just do because it seems like fun and put the work into it. Yeah. The people I've spoken to who've written books, whether they're like, most of them are like business-related people versus fiction writers, but a lot of them, they're not doing it to make the New York Times bestseller and to like sell out and then to be like up in lights. It's more of like, it's a complementary thing to their existing business strategy, or they're trying to get a TEDx talk and they need a book to be part of the deal. Like most TEDx talks, you need some sort of something tangible that people can buy or they can have set up somewhere or something. But to say that you're going to become the next James Patterson or to become like the next, like Jensen Chero, who like wrote a book and then became famous, like it's not impossible, but take it with a grain of salt, I guess. Those are outliers. Yeah, it can happen. But the chances are it probably won't. But as you said, know what this is for. That's one reason that I knew I wanted to be traditionally published with my novels. And I knew from the very beginning I did not want a traditional contract with my nonfiction book, my editing book, for the reason I said. I wanted to maintain complete control over that. And because what you said, it is an adjunct to my business. So what is it about editing then that are some myths? Like obviously it's really, it's probably not sexy. Um, Or actually, you know what? Maybe we should just dive into actually what someone could do when they actually want to write a book. Like, what's the first step before we even dive into the conversation of editing? Oh, that's great. Um, Okay, first off, write the book. (laughs) 
A lot of people say they want to write the book and then it's just an amorphous idea. The percentage of people who actually finish the book they say they want to write, I've seen the number and I don't have it off the top of my head. It's pretty low. So even if you're going to have it ghostwritten, all of this, which you know is very common with business books, especially because all great business people are not necessarily great writers. Nothing wrong with that. But everything has to come from you. So first of all, know what you want to say in this book. Why are you writing it? If you're writing creative fiction, it may be that you have a particular story that you want to tell or a theme that you want to explore or characters who live in your head and you really want to see what you can do with them. But if you're writing a nonfiction book or something to do with your business, chances are you have a message that you want to convey. Really define what that message is and know what it is and then start laying it down. One way that I do it, I'm writing a follow-up right now to intuitive editing, and my best thinking time, I do write every day. I have morning time set aside for writing, and my afternoons are for editing. But most of my really productive writing time is not at this desk. It's taking a shower or lying awake in the middle of the night where I keep a notebook next to my bed because I get really good ideas there, or walking outside. I walk my dogs every morning. There's just something about being in motion and being in nature that lets your brain, there's a great book called Deep Work by Cal Newport, where he talks about the fact that focused work can be really productive, but sometimes you have to let your brain do the semi-focused work, kind of like when you can see something out of the corner of your eye, but if you look right at it, you know, you may not see it as clearly. It's almost like that. So start thinking about what is it you want to convey and know what that is and then do the work of it. And then, as I said a minute ago, realize that writing is just the beginning and editing and revising are going to be the bulk of what it is. Hire the best professionals you can find. First of all, learn everything you can about your craft. Continue. You will always be learning. I've been doing this almost 30 years. I learn something every day. But also, especially if you are going to indie publish, do not publish that book without at least a copy editor because readers are brutal about typos. <laughs> brutal. And no matter how good your message is, you're going to alienate them if your book doesn't look professional. But you might also, if you decide you would like help with the professional editing, it can be incredibly helpful to have an editor be able to offer you the objective view of how much of what you intended to say is actually on the page. The most common or the hardest part, I guess, about trying to get your vision out is that you're filling in the blanks because in your mind, it all makes perfect sense. You know what you're trying to say and you may not know whether or not it's coming across that way on the page. An editor can help with that, but so can beta readers, so can critique partners. I often say I do not think finances should be a barrier to entry in this field, and an edit can be extremely expensive. Some authors will hire writing coaches, book coaches, people who help them stay motivated, help them get words on the page, help them find the way forward as they're drafting. Again, very expensive, can be helpful. It's the sort of the equivalent of hiring like a personal trainer. Could you do that on your own? Yes. Probably you could learn, you know, all the exercises you need and motivate yourself to work out. But if it helps you to hire someone to do it and you can afford to do that, do that. Hire the best professionals you can find, though. And there's a lot of people out there offering stuff. And then get involved in your community. If you do want to write, there are so many people out there who have made every mistake you're going to make, and they will help you not make it. And they will offer support and cheerleading and positivity when you need it and resources when you need it. 
This is an incredible community. The writing community overall really has that. It's not a zero-sum mindset, as I said. Most of the writers I know are so willing to offer the benefit of their experience and their knowledge. And there's a million podcasts out there where you have other, like Joanna Penn and Jane Friedman, and I don't even know how many other podcasters who are offering writers all this information to help them know how to get their book or their story or their nonfiction out to their desired audience at every step of the process. So just educate yourself and be open to finding out as much as you can about this thing you want to do. Yeah, that's a great starting point, though. And to your point, at least in my experience, I've always found the benefit of investing in someone who's better at what it is I want to accomplish because they know more than I do. But also YouTube is great. So like free resources are amazing, but just know, right, it comes with a price tag, right? The more you pay, the probably better outcome you're going to get. And they're not going to do it for you. Even if you do hire someone, an editor is not going to revise your book. They're going to help you see what is working as well as it could and what may not be. And help point you toward ways to address that. But they're not going to do it for you. A book coach is not going to write the book for you. A ghostwriter is the one exception. They are going to actually write the book for you, but you still have to give them the content. The work is still yours. It's your baby. I always joke that an editor really is a midwife and that it's not my baby. I didn't make the baby. I'm not going to keep the baby, but I can help you get the baby into the world. I'm wondering now that we're talking about just like people you work with and even hiring and things like that, like, how do we vet out those people, especially if we're new to the writing space? Like, how can you vet out those people? What are some red flags or green flags? Like, what's scammy or, you know, any of that stuff you could offer would be great. So there are a lot of wonderful professionals available right now. And then there are, um, so here's what people need to know. There is no governing body, no official governing body, no official training program, no licensing for anybody offering you any services in this field. So it really is on you to buyer beware and do all of your due diligence. So there are also people who maybe should not necessarily be hanging out their shingle and may not be offering you as much value as you are paying for. So educate yourself on how to figure that out. One thing to know is that no reputable agent or publisher will ever ask you for money up front. Now, an editor, somebody like me, that you're hiring for a service, that's like any contractor. And of course, you will that's a service that you're paying for. But if you are looking for an agent and if you are looking for a publisher, agents take a percentage of what you will make. You pay them nothing. Publishers will be paying you. <laughs> so that's one big red flag to look out for. Another is anyone making promises of what they can do for you. If anybody's material says, I'll teach you the secrets of uh, how to be a bestseller, I can help you get an agent, they can teach you the skills that will help you know what agents are looking for, that will help you know what's marketable, that will help you catch a publisher's attention. But if they're making any promises, that's a lie. Nobody can make promises. Nobody knows, honestly. This is the most subjective business there is, like any creative field. Nobody knows, or every publisher would have nothing but J.K. Rowling's, right? <laughs> We're all just trying to figure it out, and it's subjective. You can find someone who will give you the benefit of their experience and knowledge and they can help you be the best you are capable of being, but beware of promises. Check experience. In my case, for example, in my field, you would look at maybe what books somebody had worked on, what authors they've worked with, do they work to a contract, how long have they been doing this, 
Do they offer you a sample edit if it's an editor so you can see how they work? Are they transparent? Do they have affiliate relationships? Now, a lot of people are doing that now, and it's not necessarily as problematic as I think it was at first when it was more like kickbacks, like uh, less than reputable agents would say, oh yeah, I can represent you, but you're going to need to get edited with this person. And then they would get a kickback from that. It's different now. And a lot of businesses are built on affiliate relationships, but also make sure that, let's say you're taking a recommendation from somebody, a podcaster that you trust, and they have sent you to this editor, make sure that you're still doing your due diligence because there is an affiliate relationship and it may be that they super believe in this person. Hopefully it is. Or it may be that it's an affiliate relationship and they get a bump back. But also, again, this is an incredibly subjective field. And so even if an editor or a book coach or whoever you're hiring is fantastic at what they do, they may not be the right fit for you. So you still need to talk to them directly to look into their, what do they specialize in? What do they do your genre? Have they worked with authors that you have heard of? If you look at the books they've worked on, are they to the quality that you want? Are they the style that you want? Check references, look for testimonials. There are two sites, particular to my field, Writer Beware, which is run by the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America, and Victoria Strauss, where she will check into complaints about publishers, agents, editors, any professionals in the business, and sort of talk about what she has found. And then Absolute Right Water Cooler, which is kind of what it sounds like. It's a virtual water cooler for people to post experiences that they've had with professionals that may be good and may be problematic. And again, take those with a grain of salt. They're basically Yelp reviews. But it can be helpful to check someone you're considering hiring in all those ways to make sure that they are legitimate, reputable, and experienced. Those are awesome, especially for someone who's new to the whole field of publishing and just writing. You don't know. You don't know you don't know. Years ago, I had written a children's book and I had a publisher reach out to me and they wanted me to pay all this money and all this stuff. And I'm so glad that I didn't end up going through with it because obviously that now that you're telling me that, that would have been a red flag. (laughs) Well, you know, it kills me. It was the same with acting because when you're going into a field like that, that is your creative passion, you want it so badly, it's easy to take advantage of people. And I think most people do not in this industry, but there are some people who do. And there's just some people who are misleading you, you know, who may, with all good intentions, be offering, let's say, editing services, but maybe they don't have the track record or the experience yet to offer you what would be essentially thousands of dollars of value for what you're paying. So find out beforehand. And this is yet another reason, like you said, you don't know if you're not familiar with this industry, yet another reason to get involved in this community and to educate yourself because you will find people, everybody has walked this path before you. Like all the people who are already doing this have made, seriously, every mistake you're going to make, have wondered everything you're wondering, have had to learn probably the hard way, everything you're going to have to learn the hard way. Let yourself benefit from the experience and the support of those people. It's always better, I would find, at least in my experience in business, it's always better to ask people that I know what they did as opposed to trying to figure it out myself. Even I, I mean, (laughs) you and I talked about the fact we share an audio engineer and I did not find Tony through you, but when I was doing an audiobook, it was the first time I had done that. And I was asking everybody I knew at every step of the process, did you hire somebody? Who did you hire? How did you find them? Where did you list the book for sale? You know, how did you decide what 
distributor you were going to use, everything. And I've been in this business forever, but I didn't know all of that. Yeah. That's how I launched the podcast. I had been on someone else's show and I was like, hey, I actually really like podcasting. What did you do? And so, I mean, he gave me like a basic rundown and I've taken that and run with it. And now he asks me questions, (laughs) but that's how you start. You have to be curious. Yeah. And trust that people want to help you. And like you said, asking is huge. I, gosh, it's only been recently that I've started actively seeking out mentors. And again, not to like hammer it, but I've been in this business so long and I'm still looking for people to help me learn and grow and expand. People who have done it before me who can help educate me. It's an incredibly generous community, most of them. And the people who won't help you, you probably don't want their help anyway, because if that's their mindset, they're probably not operating their business the way that you want to operate yours. Yeah, exactly. And they're the type of people who like, if you like, it's almost like when you have those really frustrating customers or clients who have to ask every single question and they have a problem about this, they're the ones to ask you for a refund at the end. And you're just so like, true. <laughs> no, thanks. <laughs> I had a guy once who wanted to work together, and he was a lawyer. I do a sample edit for every author because, like I said, it's important to gauge whether you're the right fit for each other. And we got to that point, and he was very excited to work with me. And I said, great, I'll send you my contract. And he was very offended. He said, why would we have to go to contract? I've worked with a bunch of people. I've never had to go to contract. And I said, well, it really protects you more than me. It tells you exactly what you're going to be paying, when you can expect it, exactly what I will do, what your options are if I drop the ball. Like, it's it's there to help you. He's a lawyer, though. Know what you're... And he was a lawyer. So <laughs> That's he finally, so ironic. You're he finally... <laughs> I don't and at think this so. Point, yellow flags are flying for me. And he finally said, well, okay, I'll sign your contract. And I decided not to work with him because exactly what you just said. I thought, if you're already upset about this that is designed to protect you... This is not going to be the kind of working relationship I want to have. And that's the other great thing about doing what you love and creating the kind of career you want to. I get to work with the people I want to work with. I get to work on the projects that excite me. And every day I get to make that choice. There's nothing like that. You don't get to do that in the corporate world. No, you just get like a sheet of like, these are all the people you're going to write with your calling (laughs) at the call center. These are all the phone calls you're going to make. We don't care who you're speaking with. You're calling them. Good old corporate. But anyway, so this has been awesome. Even for me, like I'm even now more jazzed up about writing my book, which has been something I've been dying to do. So one of the things I like to do with every single guest to just like tie it up in a nice little bow, right? One funnel send off is if you could give advice to your younger self, what would that be? I think it would be take yourself seriously. I do now very much so, but I I mentioned earlier that it you know, when my husband would push me to ask for more money, the first thing I said to him was, oh, they won't use me anymore. And he's like, they absolutely will. You're really good at this. But I didn't believe in that. And I didn't take myself seriously. Well, as soon as I asked for a pretty hefty raise, every single publisher I asked for immediately offered it. And he said, see, it took you too long to ask and you've still left money on the table or it wouldn't have been that easy. And then when I wanted to go into developmental editing, I had been copy editing at that point. And I didn't think anybody would take a chance on me as a developmental editor because I didn't have a track record. And also, this comes fairly easily to me. It just happens to be what I am good at. And so to me, I I think I assumed that it wasn't a valuable skill, that it came easily to everyone. And so I had to learn to take seriously the fact that I do have a skill and I do have expertise and experience in this industry, and it is worth something, and to take ownership of my own career and to treat it like a business, as I said. I remember when Paul Jarvis's book came out, A Company of One. It was so 
validating to me because I think it's easy when you are a company of one to think, oh, I'm not a real business, but you absolutely are. And I wish I'd known that 20 years before I actually took ownership of that. Yeah. But I love how you had mentioned that, like the importance of ownership, because the sooner that you own up to who you are and what you're supposed to do and what, how you're supposed to act and who you're supposed to be, the sooner you actually get to where you need to go. Yeah. Essentially, I think, in some regard. Yeah, don't waste time. Life is short. Very few of us want to spend it in our cubicle working for somebody else's goals, right? Yeah, especially now. Everyone's like, YOLO, we're not doing some work. Yeah, <laughs> but- I think this is amazing what's happening right now. It feels like a almost a global strike where in mass people are saying this is no longer acceptable, especially in our country where— It feels like work is expected to be the center of your life. As much as my work really is like one of the most important things to me, it is not the center of my life. My life is the center of my life. I don't do what I do so that I can, you know, have the work I want. I have the work I want so that I can have the life I want. It's pretty cool. We're like epic times right now we're experiencing. I think so. (laughs) It feels really exciting to me. It feels like a lot of possibility and potential for people. Yeah, but I could imagine it's probably going to be rocky for the next couple of years as things balance out and figure, you know, more stuff out and just all that. But yeah, I'm very curious to see how gig work and freelancing and just business in general operates in the future. Yeah. And what Here's a thing I'm hoping for secretly, uh, not even secretly. I feel like one of the impediments to that, one of the huge impediments is the impediment that I saw, which is benefits, right? I had to deal with my own retirement. No big deal. I can do that. What's harder is health insurance. So what I'm hoping is that this mass exodus from the traditional model of you get health insurance if you work at this type of job will help our country change the way we think about health insurance and give, you know, this country was built on the backs of entrepreneurs and small business owners, but we're not supporting them with something like health care. So if we can figure that out, I feel like that's really going to be that last little key that's going to allow people to have the opportunity to pursue these small businesses that really are the basis of what our country is. I agree. And it's funny because I've been in talks with a couple of different startups to talk to their founders and just like have them kind of come in on the, our like quitter starter pack because they're starting to bring about products that actually can support people from a health insurance perspective who are freelancers or self-employed. So I'm like, thank God yeah. someone's doing it. Because it's grim out there without that. I started with catastrophic health insurance, which was, this was way before we had Obamacare. And it was basically your deductible was $10,000 if you got into a major accident or had a huge health thing, and then there was a cap on it. And even that cost a fortune. If you have health insurance at all, you have super crappy health insurance, and it's still taking a huge chunk of your bottom line. If we can fix that, then I feel like we're offering, we're supporting all these entrepreneurs in such a foundational way. Yeah, I agree. We'll see. I guess we'll see what happens. Yeah, but, fingers crossed. Um, fingers crossed. Keep doing yeah, what you're really doing, drinks. girl. You're part of it. <laughs> but this has been great. So can you let everyone know where they can find you if they want to connect with you on social, purchase intuitive editing, or any of your other books, or even seek out consulting services from you to get actual helping with editing? Yeah, the easiest way is just go to my website, foxprinteditorial.com. That's got all my socials. It's got how to contact me, info about my services. My online courses are on there. You can subscribe to my weekly blog where I give a ton of 
like craft advice and writing life advice. And then I've got so many free resources on there for authors, including downloadables to help you write, to help you find an editor, resources for how to get started if you're just beginning as a writer and how to start querying agents and how to get published, just everything. Cool. Well, thank you again for being on. This was really awesome. Thank you. I just love talking to you. Thanks for doing what you're doing too. I love it. Thanks for listening to the Corporate Quitter podcast. Visit corporatequitter.com for resources, extended content, and additional information about our guests. To connect with us, stay up to date on all things Corporate Quitter, and to learn more about how you can leave the nine to five, follow us on Instagram and TikTok. And if you enjoyed this episode, be sure to leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks, guys.